Welcome to the Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one horrifying minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 14, we have Lori and Tommy approaching and arriving at the Myers house, and we have our guest, Andy Nelson of the Next Real Film Podcast, back. Welcome back, Andy. Hey, hey. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> it's a little hot here in California, but otherwise I'm good. <laughs> but you're in Arizona, so you know hot. I, I'm familiar with that, yeah. yes. Um, Tad toasty here. Yeah. As I explained last minute to Andy and his listeners who've been here for a while would know, I get obsessive about these filming locations, partly because I grew up close to them and often spent time in the very neighborhood we're seeing here. Uh, so Lori and Tommy continue down Meridian in South Pasadena or in Haddonfield. This is Lampkin Lane, um, except I'm not sure when they established 45 Lampkin Lane is the Myers address. You can see 707 on the house. Correction from the future, 709, not 707. And in the novelization, it is Peacher Street. So I'm not sure why that is the official address. Though that is our listener group on Facebook, 45 Lampkin Lane. (laughs) I think the 45 Lampkin Lane might actually not come up until Resurrection. So not for like seven movies from now. I'm not sure. Interesting. That's where they also established Michael's birthday, which just hadn't come up before that. Well, it's interesting in a franchise like this, like like these early horror franchises. I mean, I know there had been franchises before that had a lot of connections and stories, but a lot of them also were very much more kind of the serialized sorts of things where you didn't have as many of the real connections and stuff. Yeah. And um, it it feels like... Um, I, now I haven't looked into like things like Godzilla and stuff like that, but I mean, some of these horror films seem like the places where a lot of these sorts of threads really started, they started weaving these across all these different things and coming up ways to do retcon things and go, oh, well, let's make her his sister. Oh, well, let's, now we're going to do this, this character. Exactly. And it certainly has kind of established a very firm trend in, uh, kind of horror franchises, uh, since then. Especially slasher films. Halloween, you get the second one, makes her his sister. By Halloween 5 and 6, there's now this cult that is making him kill people, but it's retconned as having been in place the whole time. And in, like, Friday the 13th, in the ninth film, you find out that Jason is the way he is because his mother was into weird, evil voodoo kind of stuff. <laughs> you can retcon it backward, but then now they just it's, it's it the thing. They, they love to well. do that. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, look at the Star Wars franchise. I mean, they had been coming up with stuff for decades and they hit a point where when Disney took over, they're like, you know what? We're going to have to just write it all off so that we can start all over again. They don't want to force every one of their writers to research every novel that's been out and track all the details well and you know my opinion of all of that is all of the material is out there if you like one of those elements then just let it be part of your canon you know just because they say it is or isn't doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it you know it's in the 90s i read all of the star wars novels i i, I think they can be a little absurd sometimes oh yeah it was for a while that's a lot of work novels and comics and there's a lot of material out there are the comics for, for this like actually considered part of the canon now, or are they just kind of a, their own thing? I don't think most people know they exist. You can't find them. They're not in reprints. They're not. A couple of them are available on, I think, a kind of sketchy website, 
That's where I got them. I don't know if they're officially huh. there. And one of them was canceled after two issues because no one was buying it. So if you're obsessive and are really into the series, you probably know what happens in them. If you look on the Halloween wiki, it has details from the comics, but they aren't necessarily canon now. Huh. Interesting. Which in the case of the Chaos comics is bad, I think. Oh, they are? No, I mean, it's bad that it's not canon. It tried to tie the old timeline into the reset one, mm. which I think is a good idea. You know, let fans and like enjoy both as one story. Well, and I think it's fun for the writers too to come up with ways. I mean, sometimes it works better than others, but it's fun saying, okay, how can we connect these things that that clearly they weren't trying to connect right. when they put it together initially? And I think that it, it's fun. It's like a puzzle and it can make for some interesting uh, choices. Yeah. yeah. And fun to try. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as Lori's walking with Tommy here in the novel, she asks him how old he is. And he says he's eight. Because she's thinking about Michael Myers, who was six when he killed his sister. And she asks Tommy outright, have you ever felt like killing somebody? Well, that's creepy. And he shrugs and says, sure. And she's like, you have? He's like, sure. Hasn't everybody? (laughs) He doesn't mean it seriously. He's like, when somebody takes something away from you or your parents tell you you can't have something, you feel like killing them. Is that what you mean? It's not what she means, but she's like, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like saying, oh, I want to kill you. Yeah. So the segue I had for the last minute that I never got to (laughs) was... These are the questions for my guest. Number one, have you ever murdered anyone <laughs> or do you plan to? <laughs> yeah, for the record. For the record, no. <laughs> Number two, and we kind of talked about this already. What is your history with the film Halloween? You said you saw the first two. I, I've seen, yeah, I've seen the first two. And you said something about age 20. Did you see that one? I did. I, I saw the first two and then uh, that one came out when I was working in a movie theater. And so I was pretty much watching everything. And, um, and I, I was working in a movie theater when the sixth one came out. Oh, well, there you go. I had a really good time with H2O. I thought it was a fun way to kind of bring it all back and bring Jamie Lee Curtis back and do some fun stuff. Yeah. So I had a good time with that one, but I don't think I saw anything after that either. And it's funny because when I first saw it, I think I was young enough where I I didn't really kind of click with it because in my young mind, all of these sorts of horror movies were kind of lumped together. Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They were all kind of lumped into kind of that, those horror movies that I grew up with. And so I didn't really think any anything of it. Yeah. And I, I don't think it was until much later that I, in college probably, where I kind of reevaluated the first Halloween movie and really just started enjoying it more and more. And likewise, John Carpenter, although that even came later, like it wasn't until really kind of the last uh, few years that I really kind of clicked with him and, and went through his chronology and looked at all of his movies and, and um, just... Did you watch all of them in a row? I did. I started with uh, Dark Star and went all the way through The Ward and some of his tv things wow yeah i hadn't seen dark star until i was prepping for this podcast yeah that's i've never seen that one one of my least favorites of his (laughs) i loved the downer ending it was you know it felt like you know if someone wanted to give me a lot of money and release it theatrically to make my college film then that's that's pretty much what it felt like i'm like this is no better than anything any of my me or any of my friends did in college film classes so and i immediately wanted to make a costume with the beach ball alien attached (laughs) (laughs) after watching that because it's such a great image just a beach ball with feet that might have been the only thing that i enjoyed from that movie 
that wacky little <laughs> alien. But um, and then question three was about horror films in general. I'm a big fan, and although it's very funny now that I know that you saw this when you were five, yeah, I get really. I, I'm starting to find this out about myself, and I don't know if it started when I had kids or not, but I get really uncomfortable and then angry when I'm in a horror movie now, and a parent brings young kids there <laughs> because I'm like, I can't believe I'm sitting next to this young child watching this movie that they should never be seeing. It was the hardest one for me was I I went and saw Don't Breathe. And that was and a a mother brought four or five kids that ranged probably from about four to 16. And I was just I it it made me so uncomfortable sitting next to these kids, especially toward the end when you get into like the the baster scenes and stuff. It was like, oh. So you're not going to even know what's going on. I cannot believe that. Or you would hope they don't. Oof. Yeah, I hope you don't. Yeah, I hope not. I remember I took my son to see The Mist when it came out. And the woman sitting behind us asked, she's like, you do know this is rated R, right? <laughs> like, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd read the novella. I knew what was coming. Right. Well, and like I said in the last episode, sometimes it surprises you what kids can take. You know, yeah. Like, I would never have guessed that my son would have sat down on the couch and watched Winchester next to me. But he did. And he has had no problems with it but i tell him a ghost story and it'll terrify him for months Uh, so that's like something from the halloween comics tommy and Lindsay, they're young enough they might be fine after this but in the comic books they need adult characters and they're the right age so now like they're damaged and obsessed and because of this thing that happened when they were eight Hmm. but an eight-year-old might get through it yeah they might not it's not like they saw any of the dead bodies right it's hard to say. It might have been okay. Hard to say. So then back to the minute. Yeah. Uh, Lori, in the novel anyway, asked about murder. I think the movie version of her feels a lot more carefree. Like several times in the novel, she thinks about the Myers murder and about dying. And it's kind of dour. But the way Jamie Lee Curtis plays her, it feels better. Yeah, I mean, she she feels uh, much lighter. It, was it? Uh, obviously, it was uh, after the film. But do you know if... It came out in 79. Did they adapt it from the script or... I think so, yeah, okay. yes. From certain ways it's written in there, it seems like it came straight from the script. And then they added stuff, which by this point, listeners would have heard. I actually use a large chunk of the prologue in minute three, because there's a whole flashback to Celtic civilization and a setup for the spirit that is making Michael kill things. Interesting. But that's not in the movie, because yeah. they didn't need it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of creepier without all of that. Like, I, I think it's creepy just the way it yeah. is, you know? Especially because stuff that comes up when Lori's at school about, like, fate. Like, this is, Michael Myers is just this thing that comes to town and is going to kill people. Yeah, I mean, kind of. uh, We don't need motivation. He's called The Shape, you know. (laughs) Credit him as The Shape. And in the script, they call him The Shape. It's It's very interesting. Problem with doing this movies by minute format, I forget if I've said certain things yet or if they're in my notes for later. Oh, interesting. No one ever calls him Michael Myers in the movie. Uh, At this point? No, at all. What do his parents say? They, they call him Michael. Don't his parents... Well, they don't call him Michael Myers, but they call him Michael. Yeah, they call him Michael. I believe three people say Michael, his father and his sister, and a couple people refer to Myers or the Myers house. But like Dr. Loomis never calls him by name in the movie. No, he never does. In one of the scenes added for TV earlier, there's a doctor that calls, like refers to him as Michael Audrey Myers, like says his whole name. But in the movie that we have, no one says Michael Myers. They say Judith Myers a few times, but they never actually say his name mm-hmm. in, like complete. He's the shape. Well, they never 
and they never call him that either. And it's actually interesting that they credit him as the shape and not right. just Michael Myers, because we know that that's who it is. But no, it's it's the shape, which I, I find almost more off-putting. Well, yeah, because most of the people in the movie don't know that's Michael Myers. Right, yeah. They wouldn't, that wouldn't occur to them. They're not paying attention to the news, you know, that he escaped. Right, right. If it even got on the news, well, especially so far away. Yeah, like, I, don't, I don't. Nowadays, I mean, I'm sure news stories would pop up much quicker and everything. But back then, you wouldn't. You know, I don't know if those sorts of stories would get out that quickly. I think it's in the next minute they say how far away Haddonfield is. Like it's not like it's close. Right. Yeah. Haddonfield is 150 miles away. Right. 150 miles. That's right. So I wanted to point out the palm tree. As they're walking up right after, you know, the Myers house and, and Tommy's like the Myers house and we cut to it. Yeah. As we're, as we're getting that tracking shot, passing it, we're looking at it past a palm tree, which is right in the foreground. Huh. See, I was looking for trees in the background and just completely looked past that one. Well, all you see is the trunk, but it's so obviously a palm tree right. trunk. And what's great, it's so close to the house. If yeah. you watch like the very next shot, the, the tracking uh, movement stops right as the tree in front of the palm tree is pretty much covering it up. So you can't quite see that the palm tree is right behind so it. So you can't see it there. And so about second 20, we see the Myers house, uh-huh. as you're saying, which is how the house looked at the time of filming. Most of the time of filming, it looked run down. It was abandoned. It was actually an abandoned house? Yes. Interesting. The whole block was, I think most of the block was empty houses. And then someone bought them all up. And in the mid 80s, was they were bulldozing every house on the block. And then this guy, what's his name? David Margrave made a deal with the owner. Supposedly on the exact day they were going to demolish that house. He bought it for a dollar with the promise he would keep the house intact and move it somewhere else. Oh, wow. He didn't have any land for it. And I heard from a different source. This was from CaliforniaCuriosities.com. I heard from a different source. Supposedly, when he moved it, he hadn't paid for that land yet where he moved it to. But they (laughs) moved it to a lot right across the street. So it was facing east on Meridian. Now it's down by the corner facing south. Oh, really? And so it's it's now right across the street from the hardware store. What's on the spot where the house was when they filmed here? That whole block became large apartment buildings. Oh, interesting. In the 90s, they started building them. And so, yeah, it's not houses now on that block. It looks very different. That tr- that palm tree you just saw, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> How funny. And the house is now a chiropractor's office. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> I keep wanting to go over there and like walk in. Yeah, I wonder if they've done any theming. I don't think so. But he probably gets a lot of people that go there. Oh, sure. The people at, I should have talked about this last minute, the people at the Strode house uh-huh. are apparently really nice, like Lori's house. They'll leave pumpkins on the porch with a note that says, you may borrow this for photos. <laughs> so you can pick up a pumpkin, go sit on the pillar on the corner and take pictures. That is awesome. And then put it back. I'm like, that is what you do if you live in a house like that. You know, embrace Absolutely. it and have a good time. And if you do that, they're not going to bother you. They're not going to knock and say, can we see inside? Yeah, right. They didn't even film in that house. Unfortunately, I was too young to ever go into the Myers house. I think all six of my sisters have been inside. Really? But because it was an abandoned house. At this lo- at, the, at the location? At this location? Or it, after, at the, where it was. It? Okay. Yeah. When they moved it, I would have been like 10 or 11. And so prior to... So what was it when your sisters went in? An there? abandoned house. Really? It looks like it does here in this minute. Like an abandoned, empty place, falling apart. So after the movie left... It went back. They just... It was. It basically was returned to its state and remained abandoned. And people would... Kids would sneak in and stuff. Yep. <laughs> in minute one, 
Oh, uh, man. My sisters, I think both of them tell stories about going in there with friends. But I was too young. I wasn't allowed. Oh, that's... By the time I would have done it myself, it got moved and fixed so up. So funny. Wow. Well, this is a, this is a crazy, creepy house. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a nice looking house because it's, it's got character to it, even though it's falling apart. Or because it's falling apart, maybe. <laughs> I mean, clearly the, the window in the front door is broken because we see through it and we see just a shard, you know, with the screen there. So obviously yeah. Michael is hearing them and kind of hearing this whole conversation, right? Yeah, you hear them approach. Although, he, you know, all he's doing is breathing, but they can't hear him yet, nor can they see him because it's so dark inside. Right. But it's it's it goes to just kind of Carpenter's uh, the way that he constructs scenes, I think it's it's done nicely. And even though he pulls kind of the cheap sting, the musical sting. Oh, the music? Yeah. yeah. When uh, the shape, uh, the, the silhouette pops up in the window uh, between us and them. Yeah, second 46. It's, um, it's super effective. And it just is so creepy, you know? It, it works really nicely. Yeah, one note I had. Um, the Strode Realty sign in the lawn doesn't have any contact information on it. <laughs> it just says strode realty it doesn't even say for sale i was trying to look at it i did we get a close enough view of it not in this minute you see it better later when the three boys go there and loomis scares them away i think you see it better then okay because i was looking at it but i'm like i can't i I can see that it says strode because it matches the sticker on his car right which also doesn't have a phone number on it. but i couldn't see the rest of it yeah right (laughs) like he drives around the car that doesn't have any information just tells people who he is well, this is obviously a big minute because this is the moment when Michael sees Lori. Michael sees Lori, yeah. And kind of sets this whole thing up. And this kind of, uh, barring the sister element, which obviously isn't a part of this film. Right, it comes later. It's really just him seeing her and Tommy, really, and making that connection that is going to really drive the rest of the movie. Yeah, from this movie alone, the best you can do for motivation is... Tommy and Lori remind him of his sister and him. Yeah, that's a, that's a, absolutely what I yeah. think. I mean, because even Tommy's jacket, I mean, it's not quite a colorful clown outfit, but still, it's much brighter colors than what Lori's wearing, kind of that yeah. red and white, you know, so. Yeah, they also should remind us of them. Exactly. Yeah, I, and I think it works. It's effective. Now, in the novel, well, he doesn't come outside until the next minute, but in the novel, he doesn't even come outside. He goes upstairs to Judith's room and watches them from the window. Uh-huh. So as Laurie walks away, she looks back and she thinks she sees someone watching. But then when she like refocuses her eyes, she can't see him like he's as he usually does. He moves away. Right, right. But he's watching from inside the house instead of coming outside. But yeah, this is the minute where they meet essentially. But did we say he is 20? 21. 21 years old. He's 21 and she's 17. Gotcha. And Tommy is 8. And that is one filthy screen that they're (laughs) looking through. An abandoned (laughs) house, yeah. And prior to this movie, you probably didn't have people going into it all the time. The screen might have been cleaner in the 80s. Okay, so her dad is a realtor trying to sell this house. Yeah. I know times have changed, but still, don't realtors and people like try to fix places up before they sell it? (laughs) You know, because it's like, this is just a, a rat trap. The, the novel actually talks about that because the, the people buying the house are from New York. Like They wanted the ghost. Everyone local. Right. No one local wants the house. Yeah. Because they know someone died there. And the Myers were actually stuck with the house until they died in 65. So a couple years. 
And so when they died, they already had Morgan Strode trying to sell it. And that's why the Strodes took in their daughter and adopted her is because they knew the Myers family and were already attached to them in their house. I mean, that's not in the novel, that adoption, but that's how you retcon it. So her dad. But yes, he knew the family. Has been trying to sell this house. Since 65. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I still think it's funny. Her dad has been trying to sell this house for 15 years. No one wants it. Pretty much since it happened. (laughs) No one's moving into Haddonfield. He's got not a good streak. With his sales. Which I guess is why there's no contact information on the side. But that's, but that's when a realtor says... No one's contacting anyway. Yeah. That's so funny that he... No one wants you know, it. ...stays with it, though. Like, he's very persistent. And he probably can't afford to tear it down and build something else. <laughs> no one's bothering. Well, it's not his, though. I don't know how that works with realty. I guess maybe, yeah, he's selling it for them. Now, if they've died, I mean, they... I'm assuming they would have left it to somebody or nobody, and it would well, have just gone back to the bank. But if it would have gone to the bank, then they would have uh, probably raised it and built a new house or something. So, I don't know. May- taking the later movies into account, maybe they left it to him. Maybe they left it to him. Because he's taking care of their daughter. Like, they knew he'd take the daughter in if like, he was the godfather of... Or whatever, I don't know. That, well, that would make sense. You're mixing novelization of one into the later movie of another. <laughs> that would be the only logical reason why the house would still be, yeah. you know, why he would still be bothering with that house is that, you know, he it's his now. As much as he doesn't want it, he's, you know, trying to get rid of it. So, you know, one thing that bothers me in this town, not just that it seems a little bigger than it should, because Haddonfield's supposed to be small. It seems like there's too many curbs. <laughs> Like, I was in a fairly big city, Wichita, Kansas. There were whole neighborhoods with no curbs. And that city spread out and fairly big. And this is nice paved streets of South Pasadena, because, you know, suburb of L.A. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't... I. Honestly, I have no idea how cities determine... Yeah, how big do they have to be? You know, when they're going to start putting curbs in or not. But that's an interesting thing. Yeah. But they are really wide streets. Every time I watch this, I just think about these streets are so wide for this little town. That works really well for like Cundy's um, photography, though, because he gets these big wide oh, shots. Oh, yeah, of... yeah. They're just walking down the streets. And uh, again, Carpenter does a great job of, of keeping the streets dead. Right. Like there's no life happening anywhere on the streets. And uh, with uh, Dean Cundy shooting it, it just everything just has this real just vacant yeah. look. And the, the beautiful kind of the camera movements that are just nice and slow dolly moves, um, they just... They they work really nicely to kind of enhance that feel. Yeah, if you think about it in terms of like reality, it seems too empty for a town. But for a visual on a horror film, it's really nice. Oh, yeah. Because it's these empty streets yeah. where Lori looks yeah, lonely when she's walking around. And Michael looks scarier because he's there and no one else well, is. Well, right. That's what I was going to say. It's like that's the only way that it works to have him like standing out in the sun watching her is by, you know, having the streets be so empty. Because otherwise, if there were crowds bustling around, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, there's a scene in the fourth one where Jamie, Laurie's daughter, is out trick-or-treating and there's kids everywhere. And then she gets separated from her group and it's like foggy. And suddenly she turns around and she's in an empty alley and everyone's gone. And so it makes for a cool moment, but it seems really weird because a moment ago there were people everywhere. (laughs) Here... You have that nice emptiness the whole time. And it's like, if they scream for help later, will anyone hear them? Yeah. Will there be anywhere to go? And Lori does try to get help near the end of the film and people just ignore her because it's weird. Well, and it, there's something about 
a horror movie using daylight in a scary way. And, you know, Halloween, granted, obviously the the bulk of it is Halloween night, but the whole idea of just a shape watching you in broad daylight, just staring out at you, I mean, it still is really creepy. Yeah, when he's in her backyard. And it's something that Carpenter has done really effectively, like the homeless people uh, led by Alice Cooper oh, Prince Darkness, in yeah. uh, Prince of Darkness. That has just always been one of the most frightening images for me. It's just all those people standing <laughs> and staring. And it's just, it's just, it gets under my skin. And, and, he started it here and i can't remember if he did much of that in in his previous films but this really seemed to be where it kicked off i think assault on precinct 13 is all at night it starts at sunset yeah and i don't remember anyone like really standing and staring and watching you know it wasn't as much of that there is a good scene where they see how many people are surrounding the building in the parking lot in the street but it's night right yeah and it's one angle because they didn't have that many extras But yeah, he doesn't do it during the day. But it is something that Carpenter does effectively with groups. You have this menacing quality to it. Right, right. Just standing there, like Michael. It is creepy. Really is. Now they talk about Lonnie Elam, who we'll see later in the movie. I should have turned on the subtitles as I was watching that. I, I, for the life of me, I, I wrote down like three or four different names as I was trying to figure <laughs> out what, whose name they were actually saying right there. His name is Lonnie Elam. He's one of the three kids that bullies Tommy at school later. Gotcha. And he's the one who Loomis scares when he tries to go into the Myers house. Ah, uh, okay. That's Lonnie. And he's the one who tells Tommy all these things about this yeah. house. And tells him later the boogeyman's coming to get him. Well, he's not very nice. No. Ah, uh, 70s bullies. Yeah. Anything else for minute 14? I think that's my notes from that one. So then Tommy separates from Lori, says, I gotta go, I'll see you. Starts to run across the street. Actually, he says, I'll see you. There's more to the sentence, but the minute ends before he finishes. Now, before we go, remind us, how can the listeners stalk you? Uh, yeah, they can uh, look over at uh, thenextreel.com. Um, check us out on uh, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places, and uh, all your podcatchers at The Next Reel. And check us out uh, talking about movies. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time.